What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought forth from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Would you pray with me? God, our Father, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit, we need you to work through your word to change us. As your word is preached, speak to us. For you, God, have searched our hearts. You know where we need this text applied in particular ways by your spirit to challenge, convict, and renew. So do that work. But most of all, we want to see and hear from Jesus, our Savior, And so we pray, Lord Jesus, speak to us. For where you speak, life happens. So we pray in your name. Amen. Well, if um, if you're not a Christian, you might have been wondering what all the kids were doing with palm branches. This is the week leading up to Easter where we really celebrate and rehearse some of the events of the last days of Jesus this Sunday. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem as a conquering king. What was a surprise to the people is how Jesus would conquer. He would conquer in his death at the cross. And we've been, we've been going through a series on the mission of God. And, and we've said that the mission of God is simply to undo everything that was broken by sin in this world. And what I want to do today is to dig into Romans chapter 6 and see how the mission of God really power is powered by the cross of Jesus Christ. Because if you've been listening over the last couple months, you might have become pretty overwhelmed by all that 
the Christian is to do in joining Jesus in the work of his kingdom. You might have put your hand to some of that work and found yourself pretty overwhelmed, feeling conflicted in your heart, not wanting to do some of it, finding that you're trying to do some of it and we're often frustrated by it, seeing other people do it better than you. When I used to do college ministry, the number one thing that shook the faith of incoming college freshmen who were professing believers in Jesus Christ wasn't what they saw in the classroom. It wasn't what they heard from their professors challenging the faith. It was this. They had a false narrative in their head coming onto the college campus, and that false narrative was Christians are the good people and the rest of the people are really, really bad. And what they found was oftentimes their Muslim neighbors cared better for the poor than the they did, or that their LGBTQ neighbors did community better than Christians did, or they had atheists who were actually genuinely nice people, and it shook their narrative, and it shook their faith. The cross makes Christianity unique. It's not that we're better than others. In fact, what the cross tells us And what you have to admit coming to the cross of Jesus Christ is I am more messed up than anybody around me. And that that does is it moves the center of Christianity from what we do for God to what God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when the cross becomes the center, there's all kind of room for us to see some people are better at some things than I am. No big surprise. I shouldn't be surprised when my atheist friend is much kinder than I am because I'm just not that kind of a person. Or it doesn't surprise me when I see that others are doing community better than, than we are because I know it's in my own heart. I'm surprised that we're able to do community at all if, if what's in your heart is what's in my heart. And see what the cross of Jesus says, that we've been corrupted to our core by sin. And that none of us can do anything that's purely good. It's possible to do a good thing for selfish reasons. For instance, I might go to the food kitchen and serve the poor. But if I do so simply to get a post on Instagram, then I'm not serving in the technical sense of the word. What I'm doing is I'm using. I'm using the poor to get likes or if, if I'm loving my neighbor so that other people can see how good of a person I am. I'm not loving my neighbor. I'm just using them and consuming them. I'm eating them so that I can get fat and full on the approval of others. And you begin to see when you trace those kind of roots that the love of God is the root, the love of self, sorry, the love of self is the root problem in all of the world. It causes wars to break out between nation and and it causes wars to break out in marriages. But how does love for self get undone so that we could be people who live on mission for God, who so loved the world that he gave, his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him can have eternal life? We've got to undo the root of sin. And we've got, in order to do that, we've got to be honest about the enemy that we're dealing with. This is not one of the first principles of War, go to battle 
You've got to know your enemy if you're going to see him defeated and if you're going to feel the full weight of the cross of Jesus Christ, we need to have a clear view of what sin is. And when I say sin, don't be thinking things that we do. That's sin with a small s. Wrong things, breaking God's law, not doing what he commands. Those are the external manifestations of the internal enemy. Sin with a big S. And the Bible sees this here in Romans chapter 6 as an enslaving power that is at work in all of us. It is invisible, but it is pervasive. It's similar to gravity. It's a power, it's a force that is at work on us and all the time. You can't see gravity, but you can't defy it either. You might say all day long, I am an exception to the rule. I am not under gravity's power jump off a building and see if your perception of yourself is accurate. Actually, don't try that. It'd be nice to deny the existence so we could fly around and beat traffic and run to the store without any problem. But the fact of the matter is I'm captive to his power. And this is the way the Bible diagnoses us in regards to the power of sin. It is a power that is at work in us. And then Paul changes metaphors and now uses the word slave. What kind of power is it? It is an enslaving power. He uses it six times in this chapter. Verse 17. If you've got your Bibles, this is after our text here. For you were once slaves to sin. Verse 20. When you were Slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But now that, verse 22, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit of you that you get is sanctification, it ends eternal life. It's a hard truth, it's about any of us that outside of Christ, this is what we do. We're born to the enslaving power of sin and it is ruling our lives. And that's offensive language, isn't it? I mean, none of us wakes up in the morning and likes to think of ourselves as enslaved to a power called sin. But it is a very simple image. A slave obeys his master. We even use it this way in our common world language. We say that someone might be a slave to their work. And what we mean by that is they can't escape its tentacles. They, they are on call 24-7 and and they do whatever work tells them to do. And we even use this language in, in regards to addiction. Someone might be enslaved to their addiction. They can't get away from it. They can't break free. They can only do what their addiction tells them to do. That's the way Paul is using enslavement in regards to the power of sin. Every man, woman, and child has been afflicted by the evil taskmaster of sin. And until Jesus sets we, us free, we can do nothing but obey its commands. And we do so joyfully. Let me illustrate it. How many of you ever had to sit your child down and teach them to be rebels? All right, little Sally, it's time for your lesson on rebellion. No becomes one of the first words and, and often 
the most frequent one they have. That comes out of us naturally because that's the nature of sin. The nature of the power of sin is rebellion against God. And practically, there's a very practical application to this. Practically, it helps us understand ourselves. So we can see that we've been conditioned to believe that people can be changed for better if we just reply, apply the right resources with enough resolve. Like if we just get them the right resources and try super hard, then they'll change. And we're surprised when someone doesn't change after investing a tremendous amount of energy and money on them. And the fact of the matter is that we don't have the power in any of our resources or enough time or strategies to deal with this enemy that is in all of us and enslaved us. Parents, you've got to believe this if you're going to parent your children well. Otherwise, you're just going to feel like you've failed them when they don't turn out the way that you wanted them to turn out. There's no parenting that can deal with the power of sin. Even AA recognizes this. One of the main claims of AA is you can't be cured from alcoholism. You can only manage it. That's a very humble statement. You see, the Bible agrees with that diagnosis. But it does not agree with the prognosis. The diagnosis is that we are all enslaved to sin as a ruling power in our lives. But the Bible offers another prognosis, a cure, a help. But it's gruesome. You've got to die. So how do you gain victory over the power of sin? You need to know your enemy, first of all. Be overwhelmed by it, second of all. And then third of all, you've got to see how the cross is the freedom from slavery to sin. So what effect does the death of Jesus, this historical event that happened 2,000 years ago, and the resurrection of Jesus, this historical event, have 2,000 years? What effect does it have on my current struggle with all of the brokenness and enslaving patterns of my life that no matter how hard I've tried, I just can't break. Well, you have to remember that at the cross, that Jesus didn't just deal with the penalty of sin, that at the cross, Jesus also dealt with the power of sin. And in the resurrection and his return, he's going to deal with the presence of sin in our lives. So look at verse 4. This is what Paul says. The question that he's asking in verse 1 is he's just laid out this, this magnificent grace of God that takes us as we are, makes us righteous by faith, sinners with all of our brokenness, standing before God, righteous, because God is a God of grace. He doesn't tell us, make yourselves righteous. He makes us righteous through the righteousness of his Son. Amazing grace. And then the question is, shall we say then, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Like if this is what happens, if God's grace becomes more magnificent and unbelievably good, the depths that our sin goes, shouldn't we just keep on sinning? Because then the triumph of God's grace leads to praise and honor. Paul says that's only half the gospel. 
Jesus didn't just die to get rid of the penalty of your sin. He died to deal with the power of your sin. As so, he says in verse 2, by no means. He says, you're just getting this all wrong. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How did we die to sin? Verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And baptism is a sign. This is the way Paul's using it. This is a sign to you. This is what's happening. That God's washing away the power of sin in your life. That's what baptism is a sign. It's an external sign of an of an invisible reality. You can't see that he's washed you and made you into a new person. You can't see that he killed sin. So look at baptism. It's an external sign. It's washed you and you've experienced new life. God's given it to us. You're united to Jesus. You're one with him. And the Christian has gone through a very radical transformation by God's grace. Radical in the technical sense of the word. Radical from the Latin word root meaning Latin word meaning root. Because at our root, by the death of Jesus, God has slain the enemy of sin. It's no longer appropriate to call the Christian. Just a sinner. You're a saint in Christ who still sins. But what Paul's saying is if your faith is in Jesus Christ, your excuse can never be, that's just who I am. I'm just a sinner. No, that's not who you are. You are one to Jesus Christ, and this is what happens. The old man the one that you inherited from Adam with all of its brokenness and enslavement to sin. Verse 6, our translation uses the word self. It's really man, the old man, the old person, the person that you once were. You'll see that as a footnote on your Bible, most likely, bottom of the page. Because Adam was the first man, and all who descended from Adam were sinners by nature. But we... Verse 6, we know that our old man, the sinner that we once were, enslaved by sin, was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved by sin. This is what Jesus did. He went in. How do you get free? You get free through death. Imagine that you're a World War II POW. You're captured in war, made a slave to the Germans. You're forced to do labor for them. And you had to obey their commands. All of your life was at their disposal. If you died, you would be freed from that enslaving power. They would no longer be able to command and dictate who you were and what you did. And this is what Paul's saying. Jesus' death was a death to sin. And that, by faith in him, becomes your death to sin. When you become a Christian, you are released, freed from the tyranny of sin. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin as the ruling enslaving power in our lives. Verse 8, now we, if or since we have died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. 
We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over us. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Imagine one day Canada decides to invade the United States. Pretty implausible because they're the nicest people on the continent. But imagine they establish a stealth network of cells for decades and they're successful throughout the United States and the trigger gets pulled and the United States becomes an occupied country. As citizens, we must obey the commands and customs of our occupier, which means we just have to say nice things to each other all the time. And life is miserable, but after a few years, we just get accustomed to it because that's what enslaved people do. They just forget what their freedom looks like. And our enslavement becomes our new normal. But then our allies in the European Union come to our rescue. They're fierce and unbeatable force. And they defeat the Canadians and we're all set free. But, and this is the way war often works, there are just these little pockets still of Canadian resistance all over the country. Little cells of our former occupier that needs to be killed off. That's what it looks like to grow as a Christian. Jesus has swept in with the power of the cross and he set his people free from the enslaving tyranny of sin so that we can now walk in newness of life. But you look at yourself and you're like, I don't experience that all the time. It feels like it's up and down and it feels like I just fall back into the same patterns. There are little pockets of resistance of the enemy still there. It's present, but no longer ruling. Because Jesus has laid the decisive blow and the rest of it's just cleanup work. We have a new occupying force now. Jesus has staked his claim in the life of his people and given us his spirit. The spirit that made order out of the chaos of the original creation by hovering over it and bringing it to life. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the spirit that is now at work in those who belong to Jesus Christ. And by the power of his cross, he's continuing to kill the remaining sin in our lives so that we can walk in newness of life. So I want to give us five things. Actually, I think it's six, six things to help us in our fight, to equip us in this fight, because there's still a lot that we need to do. First, we need to reorient all our lives around the truth that we're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is Paul in verse 11. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And this is what he's saying. Look, this is who you are. You may not be able to see it, but let me tell you who you really are. You might not even be experiencing this all the time, but don't let your experience or your own self-perception dictate how you see yourself. Let God in his word through the gospel dictate how you see yourself. So see yourself this way. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You've got to preach these truths to yourself and reorient ourselves around this. Believe this. But you can't just get this mindset in 
But you also have to believe that this happens over time, that like, this is who I am, the definitive break with sin is happening, and Jesus hasn't given up on me. It's not like, I've done this, now the rest is up to you. He's a God who continues to make us more like his son. I love this quote from Calvin. Calvin, this first a pastor, then a theologian. He says, progressive sanctification or the process of being made like Jesus is not accomplished in a moment, a day, or a year, but by uninterrupted, sometimes even by slow progress, God abolishes the remains of sinful corruption in his people and his elect, cleanses them from pollution, and consecrates them as his temples restoring all their inclinations to real purity so that during their whole lives they may practice repentance and know that death is the only termination of this warfare. Some of you have heard me say this a number of times, but imagine a serial killer who's killed 20 people coming to faith in Christ. Right? And then they're like, a new person. And the next year, like, they've been set free from sin's power. And the next year, they only kill three people. And you go, well, it's progress. God has done a work in their lives and is doing a work in their lives. Is that not how the Christian life is for almost every single one of us? In order to engage the power of the cross to put sin to death in progressive, growing ways, you've got to preach this truth to yourself until you're convinced by it. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Perhaps this is where the train of holiness gets derailed for most of us. We need to talk to ourselves more about who we are in Christ than about our brokenness. We need to have different conversations with ourselves. Again, no longer, well, you're a sinner. What do you expect? That sets one set of expectations. This sets another. That's no longer who you are. Sure, you still sin. But God made provision for that in Christ that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, both. And so preach this until you believe it. Preach this to yourself until you are a zealot for holiness. There's power here. This is not self-talk to self-deceive. This is speaking the truth in love to your own heart. This is who we are in Christ Jesus. And then offer your body, your members, as Paul says in verse 13, as holy instruments for God's service alone. Do not present your members as sin, to sin, as instruments of unrighteousness. Like Paul's saying, look at this thing, this body that you have, it's, it's a tool. And it can be used to one or another power either to the enslaving power of sin, which brings death, or to the death, the crucifixion power of Jesus that brings life, your choice. But if you're in Christ Jesus, you have that choice. One author puts it this way. The new lifestyle is to be marked by a conscious commitment to God and to his will. A conscious commitment. Now we are to turn themselves over. We are to turn ourselves over as people who are alive from the dead. I mean, if you, 
if Jesus came back today and we were here and we saw the bodies raised from the dead and then we saw one of them turn around and want to cover but climb back in burrow back to the ground we'd be like, what are you doing that stage has ended there's a new stage jesus has come he's bringing his new heavens and new earth that's not your home you're not to think of ourselves any longer as subjects reigned over by sin and death instead we should see ourselves as people who have been raised from dead to walk in newness of life the attitude of our heart should be yeah, here i am lord alive from the dead and prepared to live for you. So use this body, not for sin. Don't give it over to the enslaving power of sin that brings death, but to the freeing power of Jesus' death that brings life. Fourthly, feed the new man. Right? This is who you are. You're not dead in sin. You're alive to God in Christ. And so this new man, feed the new man on the heavenly manna of God's word. We need to make sure that we feast on the heavenly food of God's word or it will become spiritually anorexic. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is what happens. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. God, you've raised me from the deadly enslaving power of sin to new resurrection life of Jesus Christ. Feed me. I'll grow. I'll bear, I'll bear fruit in the weirdest kinds of seasons of my life. Things will come out of me that I'll be like, whoa, where did that come from? That's not how I usually react. I usually react in a very fleshly, self-centered kind of way. This time, I'm like in love. I'm doing something different. Where did that come from? God, by his word, heavenly manna feeding the new man. Fifth, welcome repentance because it's the dynamic of death and life. Again, John Calvin, pastor, then theologian. Believers may attain to this new kind of life. In order to get there, God assigns repentance as the goal towards which we should keep running the whole course of our lives. It's just like we avoid repentance because it feels like death. But here's the promise of the cross. The power of the cross is that by death, new life happens. So when we go and run into repentance... And on the other side of it is freedom from sin. And then sixthly, lastly, welcome suffering because by it God's making you holy. If your goal in life is to protect yourself or your children from anything uncomfortable, you will never live a holy life. Ever. Death and resurrection. The power of the cross. If your goal is just to insulate yourselves from anything anything painful you will never grow to be like jesus first of all that's completely impossible because we live in a fallen world as fallen people with other fallen people around so we're going to kind of hurt each other and rub each other the wrong way and you're going to sit get sick and then eventually die but if we embrace that is the way the means through which god is taking the death of jesus 
and applying it to the remaining pockets of sinful resistance in my heart? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Because there's no holiness without suffering. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. In that same context, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This is what God does. In the worst moments of our lives, you can just sit there and go, God's up to something. I'm going to come out of this more like Jesus. There's hope. And if that truth is planted in your soul at the most basic level, you'll look at suffering through new eyes. It's the work of a father who loves you. Loves you enough not to let the enslaving power of sin take you down anymore, but wants to get out its last vestiges with the death of Jesus so that you can experience all of the freedom the cross brings. It may sound like a morbid ambition, It's really resurrection ambition. For sin, verse 14, will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but in Christ under grace. It's good news. Amen? Let's pray. God, we would ask you to help us believe this. For we, we want to be, I want us to be, you want us to be an ambitiously holy people, a people who pursue holiness with reckless abandon, believing that the power of Jesus is at work in us and we are new people, not who we once were, but not yet who we will be. Thank you that in Christ, we do have all things necessary for life and godliness. You have not shortchanged us. You will not give up on us, and you will never let us go. And so help us believe, believe that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.